It's the 4th of November, 2018, and this is episode 380 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. So guys, have you heard about this new thing called Initiative Q? Sounds a little sinister, doesn't it? It does sound sinister. No, has this got anything to do with QAnon? <laughs> no. I hope not. In fact, it seems like the exact opposite of anything anonymous. <laughs> so I don't know too much about it, and I don't want to give them free promotion or whatever by talking about it, but I think it's kind of interesting. So what it is, a payment system that attempts to combine the best features of cryptocurrency with something like PayPal or our current payment systems like credit cards and cash and stuff like that. At this phase, they're trying to onboard a bunch of users because they say that in order to have a really good payment system, you need not only a critical mass of users, but also a critical mass of merchants. And they have this timeline where they're recruiting people kind of in phases. And what they're doing to recruit people is giving away a future currency, which kind of appears to be maybe a, like a cryptocurrency. They're called the Q. And if you sign up early for it, you get more. And if you invite your friends, you get more as well. And they mention like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies a lot on their website. They say Bitcoin is great. It's really convenient, but it doesn't have things like, you know, refunds and it doesn't have really good trackability. And you can't just go into a store and like tap a card or something and pay for something with Bitcoin. That's what we envision. We envision you being able to go into a store and just pick up something and scan a code on your phone and then just walk out with it without any kind of payment terminals or anything like that. So the way that they're getting there is by onboarding people in these phases. I don't know. To me, it, they really have big dreams with this. They really have big plans. Like they want to kind of like dominate the economy and they want this to be like a global thing. They're talking about tying together the global economy and bringing in the unbanked into this. Some of the features of Bitcoin that they want to change or get rid of in their system are things that we've talked about a lot that are features and not bugs, like the irreversibility of transactions and the anonymity or pseudonymity of Bitcoin. You know, at least in some contexts, those are beneficial features and not problems, but they're kind of defining them as problems. So based on what you've heard, like, would you guys sign up for something like this? Would you, <laughs> would you be Hell interested no. in it? Hell no. <laughs> Why not? I mean, well, simple. It's centralized, clearly. And if it's not decentralized, they can't be open. If it's not decentralized, they can't be borderless. If it's not decentralized, they can't be neutral. If it's not decentralized, they can't be censorship resistant. As a result, it can't be global. As a result, it can't serve the unbanked. Because the unbanked are unserved through the very regulation of trackability and vetting and identity requirements that are hobble our existing centralized surveillance systems. And if you have a centralized system, you have a responsibility of regulation and surveillance because that's what comes with the traditional payment systems. So they won't actually be able to do any of those things. Also, the whole recruit your friends to get more queue sounds awfully lot like a pyramid scheme to me and not very appealing. But hey, all the luck to them. Well, I mean, as people in crypto, let's be clear, pyramid schemes revolve specifically around certain types of value coming into a system, right? 
Because otherwise you could describe something like Bitcoin or, or any of these other cryptocurrencies out there as things that are similar to that. And in fact, the characteristics aren't similar. What is similar to crypto here, though, is the mechanism that they're trying to use as an incentivization to get people to join, right? They're correct that the network effect is super important. And so they look at crypto and they say, well, what are the parts of it that worked really well? And the part that worked really well was that financial speculation. You know, I'm on their website now. And if you look at the top, it says estimated future value of next spot, i.e. the next person who joins is $92,823. Not exactly sure how they're generating that number. Oh, based on a target value of one USD per queue. Right. And they compare it to cryptocurrency. They basically say like, well, if we could capture all this market, you know, if we could use this for payments in all these situations, then the value of this market would be such and such, and that would make the value of our currency this. But they don't seem to understand cryptocurrency or why it's different than the existing payment systems and why these things, such as irreversibility as a foundational layer rather than a second layer, which is impossible. You can build reversible transactions on top of irreversible transactions. You cannot build irreversible transactions on top of a reversible system. And they don't seem to understand that all of the things that they tout as benefits, like reaching the unbanked and making it global and borderless, are benefits that derive from decentralizing control, not from any magical technological aspect of cryptocurrencies, but because of the architecture of decentralization. So they basically don't understand cryptocurrencies. Oh, well, that's not new. They're joining a very, very well-trodden path. I can't speak to what they do or do not know, but I can say that it is an evolutionary adaptation, right? Signaling something you're not, but pretending you are. The whole reason we have colors in pigmentation is to let people know that you're poisonous or to let people pretend to think that you're poisonous while pretending you're not. So this is like the flies that have the coloration of a bee. But they don't make honey. They land right. on Or the snakes that have the bands, but it's not yellow and black, it's yellow and red, and you have to remember that dumb poem. Well, it's much more efficient, it turns out, to pretend to be something that other things actually are and get the benefits of that pretense than it is to actually be that thing itself. It's much more efficient that way, but you don't get the benefits of actually being the thing. Unless those aren't the things that you were seeking. I remember one of my favorite quotes, and you know, I'm going to have to look it up one day so we can play it in an episode, was at the first Coindesk, or the second consensus from Coindesk, there was an IBM engineer who was asked what his favorite thing about blockchain was. And his response was, my favorite thing about blockchain is when I tell my boss it's a blockchain, he approves the proposal for me to continue researching it. <laughs> wow. That says a lot. <laughs> uh. Now, I'm I'm with you guys. I mean, I'm I feel skeptical about this too. But on the other hand, couldn't you make the argument like just to play devil's advocate for a minute? Yes, it is centralized and yes, it has a lot of false markings of a cryptocurrency. But in its defense, like what if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are for kind of different purposes that require the features that they have? And what they're doing with this initiative queue is really more for like merchants and payments. But you said you said this came from PayPal, former PayPal folks, former PayPal. Yeah, as I understand it. Yeah. PayPal demonstrated exactly why that model didn't work, because PayPal started with many of the aspirations of cryptocurrency. And then they got ground down through regulation into becoming just a bank. And so, yes, maybe what they're trying to do is make a payment network that is 
slightly more convenient, slightly more viral, slightly more networked than the existing banking payment systems. But the banks already know the playbook of how to defang competition like that. And they very successfully defang it by making sure that it doesn't scale globally and cannot move beyond jurisdictions by increasing the regulatory costs and gradually grinding them down through KYC, AML, and other regulations, and effectively not allowing them to scale. PayPal failed for exactly that reason. It succeeded in being slightly better than a bank until eventually you realize it is just a bank. And it has all of the problems of the existing banks and the limitations of reach of the existing banking system. So reinventing that, well, I mean, all luck to them, but hey, that's a crowded space because PayPal still exists and Venmo and others have come into that space. And the banks are gradually filling up that space with their own other branded products where they take a bank brand that is toxic and they wrap it in something cute and cuddly like ally and friend and whatever. (laughs) And then they basically try to rebrand it to something new and they have all of these direct payment networks between them that are somewhat faster than the very slow systems they offered before. So that's a very crowded space and there's not much to differentiate there. The illusion to cryptocurrency is an illusion, an illusion of an illusion. And it's completely pretend because the reason cryptocurrencies can escape that model is because they're decentralized. And say, well, how about we do the same thing, only centralized? Well, how about you can't? I'd like to read a little bit from the FAQ of Initiative Q. How is this different from Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? They're actually talking a lot of smack about cryptocurrencies on their website. They say, cryptocurrency is a brilliant solution to a problem that doesn't exist. And then they talk about how it's mathematically ingenious, but it's too complicated for most people to use. The security risk is on the owner of the cryptocurrency. Compare that to a credit card, which allows you to make a payment with just a few numbers while being fully insured and protected from losses or whatever underlines how far cryptocurrencies have to go before becoming the currency of the future. I'm reminded of that picture of the person riding on the front of a car with a horse towing the car behind them because of the concerns about the engines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. TCPIP is a solution to a problem nobody wants. Why not use our beautiful high-quality telephone service that only costs $1 a minute to call your relatives? And who actually needs this? Well, guess what? All of the people who don't have access to telephones because your system cannot scale to serve them. And the same thing exists in finance. Yeah, sure. Crypto isn't a good replacement for credit cards for people who have credit cards. Well, that's not the population that needs to be served. I think Initiative Q actually does demonstrate that cryptocurrency can be an elegant solution to the problem of Nobody thinking that you're anything special in a crowded marketplace, <laughs> right? <laughs> like if you can borrow the mystique, like even what they've called it, Initiative Q, right? Like this is not a brand name. This is like a try to get some talking about it, some excitement. And it worked with us. But I mean, at the end of the day, that seems to be what it really is. is it's just like they need to differentiate themselves in the space. I remember we talked with Bill Barhide from Abra, and he was talking about just the cost of customer acquisition for traditional financial applications, regardless of whether they're talking about cryptocurrency or not. And it is a substantial cost. As we were digging into how people acquire customers in the money transfer space, predominantly from the send market of the U.S., it's really ugly. 
right? My theory right now, and I've dug into this, you know, Zoom, which is now part of PayPal, I think it was about a billion dollar acquisition. I may be wrong on that. It's it's an okay exit given where they were as a company, but I would guess that they had no choice but to sell because the cost of customer acquisition was getting out of hand. That's my theory. I'm guessing it got to the point where they were spending between 60 and $100 to acquire a customer, okay? Now, if you have that customer for a couple of years and you know remittance economics, at least their remittance economics, it actually is a viable business. But the, the cash outlays that you're having to put up front to build that business are obviously enormous at any kind of scale. So meaning a million customers w- would cost you $100 million to acquire And Abra, as not being an efficient business at that point, was going to be spending more than that, not less. And there was obviously no network effect in the business at that point. So for them, they're just looking at this, and this is just a different way to deploy marketing money in order to build that initial audience. I think it's a clever way to do it, but it's clearly very, very different than anything we're interested in. And the failure in PayPal was not because it had the wrong vision, but it's that in being centralized, you end up, in order to succeed having just the stripes and none of the venom. Right. So one of my favorite books, if you want to learn about the failures of PayPal and the success of it, the success as a company, the failure as a vision, is a book called PayPal Wars, which talks about how they started and how they gained market adoption. And in it, there's this quote that every couple of years I find myself sharing from Peter Thiel about what his encapsulated vision for PayPal was to be in the late 90s and the early aughts, which is directly from the book. Of course, what we're calling convenient for American users will be revolutionary to the developing world. Many of these governments play fast and loose with their currencies. They use inflation and sometimes wholesale currency devaluations like we saw in Russia and other Southeast Asian countries to take away the wealth away from their citizens. Many of the ordinary people never have the opportunity to even open up an offshore account or get their hands on more than a few bills of a stable currency. Eventually, PayPal will be able to change this. In the future, when we make our service available to outside the United States and internet penetration expands to all economic tiers of people, PayPal will give citizens of the world more direct control over the currencies that they own than they've ever had before. It will be nearly impossible for corrupt governments to steal the wealth from their people through their old means because they will try to switch dollars to pounds or yen. In effect, these people will be able to dump worthless local currency for something more secure. Granted, that part of our vision is some time off. And that was what PayPal was supposed to be. Bitcoin. Yes. PayPal was supposed to be Bitcoin. And it failed because it became a successful company and failed to become a successful protocol. The best comparison to that is the parallel trajectory of Skype, which failed to become a profitable company, but succeeded wildly in becoming a successful protocol and introduced people to the concept of voice and eventually video over IP. To the point that today, all phone calls are effectively voice over IP, even the phone company ones, and you don't have to pay for a phone call anymore. PayPal became the exact opposite. It became a successful company, but only by sacrificing the vision of a protocol. Skype became a failed company by sacrificing the company, but introduced an era of successful protocols that actually achieved the vision. The vision of completely free, accessible communication everywhere in the world that's very difficult to censor and stop. And the reason you can't do that with money is decentralization. You can't do it in a centralized form. Do you guys remember in Star Trek, The Next Generation, where they had the character of Q, who was this omnipotent, godlike force that could just do something like knock the ship into the 
gamma quadrant with a snap of his fingers or take you back in time to the beginning of life on Earth <laughs> and let you watch the amino acids coming together. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Q was all powerful, but also like a, a real creator of mischief. Do you think this is might be where the name comes from? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they've got some pretty ambitious visions for what they want to do with this payment network. I think Q is the most mysterious letter by far. So following on the have the stripes, not the venom. <laughs> it is the letter that starts the word question, I guess. Most Bitcoin and blockchain events are expensive to attend, often charging $300 or more. Andreas M. Antonopoulos does events differently. Thanks to support from his subscribers on Patreon, he's able to put on educational events for as low as $30, one-tenth of the cost. On Saturday, November 10th, he'll be putting on a show in Seattle. It'll start at 6 p.m. with a screening of the documentary Ulterior States. Then Andreas will deliver one of his electrifying talks, followed by a long Q&A session and a meet and greet. To find out more about this event and get your tickets, go to andreas.events. To support Andreas in educating the world about open blockchains with a strong and neutral voice, consider subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash aantonop at $5 a month. Patrons get early access to videos before they're made public, as well as the chance to ask questions on his monthly Q&A live stream. One more time, to attend this special event in Seattle and connect with Andreas live, go to andreas.events. So we've been talking about money and we spend a lot of our time talking about money. But one of the other things that I think is tangentially related and I wanted to bring up is we're talking about sharing economy stuff as it relates to kind of the network effect, as it relates to cryptocurrency, as it relates to the conversation really we were just having about how a company like PayPal can start off trying to effectively recreate something that is like Bitcoin, you know, in its empowering sort of level playing field and opt out mechanism. But in other parts of the sharing economy, besides money, obviously it didn't work for PayPal. And, you know, you need things like cryptocurrency to emerge. You know, you look at a, a project like Uber or a project like Airbnb, and these are projects that started off being really kind of just let's do it right. Like, let's just start ride sharing and then we'll worry about the kind of legality of it later. And that's a strategy that worked for, you know, a while. And then as they started to get big and as Uber started cutting into taxi fares and, you know, hotels started actually seeing less overall usage or at least diminished usage because now there was competition from things like Airbnb, local governments and governments at various levels have come in and said to these places, you're breaking the rules. You need to follow the rules and the people who you're working with also need to follow the rules as well. And this is interesting because really what's happening here is that you have these companies like Uber or Airbnb, and they don't actually own any of the resources that they are making money off of, right? They're multi-sided marketplaces that sit in the middle and they connect on the one side, someone who has a car and wants to drive and wants to earn money, you know, doing that with somebody who's looking for a ride and doesn't want to ride in a taxi. But the actual value that's being provided by the company itself is merely the matchmaking between these two things. And for that, these companies take a fairly large chunk of the actual money that goes through the system for providing that service. We're talking about in the Initiative Q conversation, kind of how do you start a project like this in a competitive space or in a space that nobody really understands? And one of the ways you do it is by moving fast and breaking things. And another way you do it is by paying people in order to do that, right? But in decentralized systems, there's a different set of challenges. If I have a car and I want to make money, I have the choice 
of actually becoming a taxi driver and going through all the rigmarole on that side, or I could replace what Uber effectively does by just going out there and, you know, creating my own application and then having people book me specifically. But the economies of scale aren't really there to make that make sense. And this is true of anyone who wants to rent their own house. Certainly you could set up your own website that has, you know, your house rental and not pay Airbnb. But that means that you'd have to find your own audience, market it yourself, deal with all of the technical stuff. And it strikes me that while these projects are very difficult to get started in a fully decentralized capacity, once they are started, like to the point that Airbnb and Uber are at now, it seems like it might actually be easier to operate these things in a decentralized way and effectively get rid of the initial kind of bootstrapping centralization part and not have to worry about the ability for a government in New York to go after Airbnb and then for that to have impacts on every single person who's renting, not just in New York, but everywhere else in the world too, right? Which then sets a precedent, which then makes it easier for another country or city to go after Airbnb and say, hey, we want you to follow these rules or these rules. Well, I would say there's also an even greater concern rather than just the government putting a thumb on a central actor, which is that a thing to be lauded in the sharing economy is the empowerment that it gives different actors to engage in something and do something they couldn't do before. As a function of the market, a consolidation of power is just a natural thing. But I don't think that's something that should be lauded. That should be something that should be sort of resisted against. Like you need to prove why you should have that. And sort of one of the concerns with mechanisms for marketplace design on the internet, where they don't own anything, they don't control anything, is that they're consolidating power and control over a larger increasing swath of people. And that in and of itself should always be something that should be resisted against. Now, if by the basis of merit you can achieve that, that's great. But if there's the capacity to do it in a way that doesn't give a single person that, you know, the one true ring, that's what makes blockchain so awesome, is that you can achieve the same type of mechanism design, but not have any single person get to own the ring of Sauron. And that's why when you look at an Uber or an Airbnb or Google with its search engine, I look at that and I go, look at this great multi-sided marketplace. I can't wait till we can figure out how to throw that ring into the mountain. So what purpose does a decentralized architecture serve in these kinds of markets? Well, I think the same exact purpose that it serves in payments. So what decentralization does is it creates an environment where it is possible to have a system that is open, borderless, neutral, transparent, censorship resistant. And if you need these characteristics and the ride sharing and housing market need these characteristics. They need to be open so that participants can join either as people who make resources available or who use those resources. They need to be neutral so that you don't get the opportunity to rig the market. They need to be transparent so that you can have things like valid reviews of customers. They need to have censorship resistance so that a local government can't simply shut the service down. And they need to be borderless so that you can expand and scale them to the whole world without limitations. And if you look at things like ride sharing or home sharing or any other kind of sharing economy applications, such as the ones that have proven to be successful, you can decentralize most of the aspects of that application. The, the matchmaking part isn't the hard part. There's two hard parts. One hard part is payments. And the other hard part potentially is identity if you want to verify the uniqueness of reviews, but you can also solve that with payments, meaning that only the people who've actually paid for a property can create reviews and have reviews created for them. 
And so if you have a payments history, you also have a review history. And without payments, you don't have reviews. Without reviews, you don't have payments. So you can attach the review side of the identity and even maintain an anonymous market with good reviews because of payments. That's what platforms like OpenBazaar do in the blockchain space. Payments, in fact, turn out to be the one part of that market that not only can't be decentralized into a protocol without blockchain or a digital currency like Bitcoin, but in fact is the source of most of the centralization. It is because the average individual can't become a payment provider or aggregate payments effectively and cost-effectively and can easily be censored if the government decides to push a thumb down on them, that you have these services emerge around payments. Payments are the centralized core, and around those, all of the other services centralized too, and give the opportunity for these market makers, if you like, to charge 20% in a market where their participation probably isn't even worth 2%. Payments centralize these services, and if we decentralize payments, we can decentralize everything about these services. You know, you mentioned Open Bazaar, and Open Bazaar is kind of on my mind when I think about this stuff too. If we were going to talk about the, if there is such a thing as the correct way to decentralize a project like this, would Uber wind up being more like Open Bazaar, which is sort of a protocol that doesn't actually run its own tokens? It's not its own cryptocurrency. It's a protocol for doing certain types of matchmaking, certain types of store creation and sales and things like that. But at its core, it uses Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies under the hood. Or are we talking about something that's more like Ethereum, where you actually want to put that data onto a blockchain and you want to kind of have a native token going in? Should there be Ubercoin or is this open Uber? I see it more as a dApp in that part of it is a payments blockchain, which could be Ethereum. And you may even need some basic smart contract functionality, for example, to be able to do some basic escrow capabilities, which you can do with simple Bitcoin script, and you can do even more easily with things like Ethereum smart contracts. You probably don't need that much in terms of smart contracts, but who knows? But then you also need other decentralized platforms underneath. The Web3 model that Ethereum introduces for dApps, where you also have a decentralized storage mechanism, which can be IPFS or Swarm or something else, and the decentralized messaging platform that allows you to do both real-time messages and store-and-forward messages that are encrypted end-to-end. So essentially think of it as Signal plus BitTorrent plus Bitcoin, or Swarm plus Whisper plus Ethereum. All of these combinations give you a fully-fledged decentralized application that has all of its resources, all of its storage, all of its messaging, and its payments on peer-to-peer platforms. They don't have to be blockchains, though. The payments do, but nothing else does. So how do we get from here to there is a question that I spent a lot of time thinking about, because we've actually seen projects like Swarm City is the one that comes to mind, not to be confused with the other Swarm several projects that are out there. Swarm City was, if I recall correctly, a project that came out on Ethereum that was trying to do kind of like an Uber-like thing. And I remember that they had a collaboration with Jason King, and they were doing deliveries of charitable things to people who were on the street for a while. But ultimately, it's a project that was interesting in concept, but has not certainly gotten to any point of meaningful success. 
In fact, I don't even know if that app was ever released. It was definitely in use for, you know, was yeah, it? For, for, you know, for a while. Maybe I'm thinking of Arcade City. Oh, Arcade City. Now that may be what I'm thinking of too. That never came to fruition as far as I understand it. Okay. There was that thing with the cities needing to be unlocked and get a certain number of users, but it appeared to be just like a stall tactic for the app to actually come out. Okay, okay. Well, anyways, this all proves my point. There's a simple reason why these applications have not yet emerged, and that's because they're third-generation applications. And if you think about it, the different types of applications that you can launch during a technological maturity curve have to do with how many participants you have to have on each side of the market and how densely they have to exist in a certain geography or not geography at all. So, for example, the first-generation application for blockchains has been speculation and markets. And the reason for that is because if you buy a cryptocurrency and hold, you don't really care about finding someone else to interact with. You just need to interact with someone once, and that's it. So it's a one-sided, almost, market. If you want to do basic online commerce, you need to find both buyers and sellers, which have a significant enough population or adoption that you can buy and sell things. In the online realm, you just have to find sufficient people in the entire world who have that. If you wanted to go to geographically constrained retail, like physical retail, now you have to find enough buyers and sellers in the same geography in order to do matching. We're not there yet, which is why you can't buy things in shops with crypto, because there aren't enough customers, so there aren't enough sellers. And there aren't enough sellers because there aren't enough customers, there aren't enough customers because there aren't enough sellers. That market's very difficult to bootstrap. Just like you couldn't do Facebook until you had enough people, permanent internet connections in one geography. That's why things like that started on a single university campus and not global. Once you have enough people in a single geography, now you can match people to each other and they have it. So bootstrapping right now, decentralized Uber, unless there's a magical city in which everybody already has cryptocurrency wallets ready to go and willing to spend them and all of the drivers want to take it, that doesn't make any sense, and you're never going to have that because they don't have anywhere to spend their cryptocurrency. So you can't do that third generation until you have physical retail broadly adopted, and then you can have other types of marketplace. Do you think that the centralized versions have to fail in order for decentralized versions to be attractive in this way? I, I guess the question I'm really asking here is, is decentralizing their existing service a viable option as these companies continue to run into more and more regulatory restrictions? Because as we've said before, if you have the ability to do something, you have the responsibility to do something. But if you don't have the ability to do it, then there isn't really much in the force of law that can actually make you do something like that, right? So is, is that true in this case for these companies that already have these markets but are seeing more and more kind of regulatory restrictions and actions come against them? Or are we really waiting for them to die and for the gap that they left in the canopy than to allow other decentralized trees to grow up? I don't think you need a gap in the canopy. Right now, they're exploiting a gap in the canopy. And the gap in the canopy is that the licensed medallion mechanism for transportation in private vehicles sucks worldwide. And I've been ripped off by taxi drivers in every country in the world, because that's what you get when you create a state-backed monopoly with a cozy relationship and fixed license fees that are enormous. You get a cartel, and the yellow cartel is a very, very effective cartel worldwide, massive power in unions and city governments. 
it's easy to establish a market there because the existing product sucks. And the product they're offering, centralized though it may be, is so vastly superior that even though they're getting resistance from regulators, they've got the entire buying public on their side <laughs> because everybody prefers a ride-hailing service than a taxi, or almost everyone. Same thing with the hotel industry. There's plenty of room for these services to grow because even in their centralized incarnation, they're still vastly superior than what they're replacing. But at some point, when the market is mature enough, the decentralized alternatives will be able to come in and disrupt these services by being superior to them. They don't need to disappear or go away first to create that opportunity. In fact, what they're going to do is pave the way by breaking down the cartel power and regulation power of the taxi cartel or the hotel cartel so that by the time the decentralized market is ready to go, there'll be a lot less resistance. And then, you know, the decentralized option can break down what will have then emerged as the Uber cartel or the Airbnb cartel. It's interesting how Uber seems to know this, you know, <laughs> like the way that they act with governments and the way that they support police conferences and they try to work with city governments and stuff like that. It really looks like they're getting pretty close. So I think they know this deep down and they act like it. One of the advantages that Uber has really had in this fight is that Uber is a large, global, very well-funded company, and the monopolies that it's fighting are all actually regional monopolies, right? A New York medallion is completely different from a Chicago medallion is completely different from, you know, a medallion somewhere else in the world, and they have different systems and different people you pay and stuff like that. And so while there has been pushback at the local level, that's really what it's been. It's been local pushback. You look at something like Napster, and Napster was actually in a very similar situation. It was breaking rules, empowering people, and doing all sorts of things that they weren't actually making any money. The difference there was is that they faced a unified threat, right? The labels are national, international organizations, and there aren't that many of them that are that big. So all it takes is one of the big guys going after you, and then suddenly you have a fight that's outsized. So things like Airbnb and other things in the physical sharing economy that are dealing with regional monopolies seem like they really had a meaningful advantage there. But I wonder how the situation that they're replacing, the status quo that's replacing, is not a regional status quo. It is a global status quo, because as you said, regionally, the situation sucks everywhere. But the new status quo will be different than that old status quo in that way, and that there's just the one Uber. And so, you know, Uber can absorb losses if they lose half of their cities, right? Ultimately, the people who are local there suffer much more than the overall company does. The company can still keep going because it has its markets where it hasn't lost. So that's another interesting kind of difference between this project versus projects facing more centralized foes. In this case, they're actually fighting a decentralized network of monopolies, and that's a much weaker thing for them to be going against them than you know a unified approach. I, I don't even think so. In fact, I think the switching costs become so low Right now, already, they have the problem that drivers can very easily run multiple ride-sharing applications, if necessary, by getting multiple phones, if they try to control their life to the tiniest degree, which, of course, they do. Most of the drivers I meet are running on two, sometimes three different ride-sharing services, and they arbitrage between them. And they have to, because they can't make enough money if they're just working for one. A decentralized application would be global from day one and would have very low barrier to entry and would simultaneously be able to compete in every jurisdiction with every ride-sharing application everywhere at once. And at that point, the switching cost is either just add another app to your phone or if you're absolutely in a 
difficult situation, add another very, very cheap phone so you can participate in the decentralized application and their entire global market disappears overnight. This is the kind of thing where a company that is worth billions of dollars can in six months disappear. I see what you're saying. So really what Uber is doing effectively for the decentralized applications that'll follow is it's creating the marketplace of people who think of themselves as rideshare drivers or whatever it is that you know you want to call that type of person. And once you've got them thinking like that, the question of what application and what network they're using to match them up with work is really less important than what's the work that I can meaningfully acquire through all of these channels, right? There's no disadvantage to running more than one. Not just that, not just that. They're doing that, but they're also breaking down local regulations so that the drivers themselves are not hounded by the local government and treated as criminals. So it's giving them essentially a global legal defense fund and the resources to gradually increase the markets that they can address. And then by effectively hiring a whole executive layer of the most douchebaggy MBAs ever seen, they are creating this toxic atmosphere where local governments are going to regulate competition into the ride-hailing services and force them to allow their own drivers to be able to run more than one service because <laughs> Uber has a toxic management culture. They're alienating everyone, including their drivers and customers. And as a result, they're creating the environment where you're going to see regulations that allow alternatives, whether that's their current competitors like Lyft or the former taxi companies that switch to ride-hailing companies as we're seeing throughout Europe and South America, or eventually a decentralized company. So by the time the decentralized application comes along, they won't be able to ban their drivers from using it because they will have already been restricted in those kinds of practices by governments. I feel like there's some sort of analogy to be had here between like the natural world where you see certain types of animals taking in some type of resource that's completely inaccessible to other types of animals. And then their processing it effectively makes it available, right? And transforms the landscape into something that is then much more hospitable to other types of animals. Right. You need trees and grasses before you can get herbivores. But an even closer analogy is you first needed Skype to break the phone monopolies all around the world, which was a very hard, slow, arduous legal work. And then that gave rise to VoIPass protocol that then just made Skype one of many different wrappers for basically the same protocols that now exist and are end-to-end -end encrypted, reliable, and high quality and exist everywhere. And those found it very easy to display Skype where Skype had to do all of the hard work to establish itself in all the different jurisdictions. You know, this topic of switching costs, I think, is really important to all network effects. And, you know, it's why Facebook is so sticky, but Uber isn't. Because there's a sticking cost to Facebook, which is all your friends are there and your content's there. Whereas with Uber, a driver's just going to take whatever they can take and a, a rider's just going to go on whatever network that gets them the fastest and cheapest taxi. Right. But that also sort of switches to a conversation in and of itself which is a lot of people like to think that the market as it currently stands is the way it's going to be in perpetuity. And, you know, you can think of the Netscape example to sort of push back on that one. And we look at protocols right now in the lay of the land and just think of like, where are their switching costs and where aren't there? And like, which of these protocols are going to end up being the Netscape or the Uber in that they're functionally viable and they break up the market, but the, because they lack any sort of network-based or inherent switching cost to it, 
the moment a network of competitors come out, they just see their market share gone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Bill Barhide, and Adam B. Levine. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. LTB 380 was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.